Welcome to Watershed's October podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove. I'm the cinema curator here at Watershed. Um, and delighted to welcome everyone back to the second month of Watershed's reopening. Um, I've been absolutely thrilled to see not just films back on the big screen at Watershed, but also audiences coming in and really responding positively to the programme. So it's uh, thanks to everybody for, for your support. Um, we've been getting some great feedback and it's just such a brilliant experience to have, um, as I say, audiences back enjoying films where they should be seen, of course, in the, in the cinema. Um, and I'm also delighted this month to welcome back Tara Judah, who is cinema producer uh, working on with me on the programme. Um, and she's been off on maternity and then there's been a little bit of a pandemic that happened. But I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Tara back. Thank you, Mark. It's so nice to be back. And uh, yeah, what a strange return. I mean, most people don't have the added thing of they go away on maternity leave and they return to see, oh, I wonder what's happened um, in the 12 months that I've not been around. But mine was more like, I wonder what happened in the 14 months that I've not been around. Oh, one or two things. So uh, yeah, a little bit of a changed landscape to return to, but um, excited that films are once again beating away, a little heartbeat beating away in cinemas across the country. And it's really nice to see that cinemas are reopening everywhere here and also elsewhere abroad. Yeah, no, it is, it is, it is great and, and, and a relief. Um, so October, um, Tara, what, what, what are you looking forward to this month? I think actually the film that I'm most looking forward to is St. Maud. Um, this is yeah. like, oh, Morford Clark, uh, who is a Welsh actress that is um, going from strength to strength, actually. I think, you know, she sort of had lots of little roles and this is her, um, you know, really big role. But one of those, I mean, I love horror films. Um, it's a straight up horror. It's it's also got Jennifer Ellie in it, who I love back from her Pride and Prejudice days. Um, so the, the the two of them in this this interesting relationship that's going to play out uh, about religion, about exorcism, something haunting. I mean, I, I haven't had the chance to see this yet, but I have heard early from friends who have. Um, and Anna Bogatskaya, who's a good friend and one of Final Girls UK, who specializes in horror film, has managed to see it twice and says it's brilliant. So this is definitely something I cannot wait to see. It is a fantastic film, and it's a great debut um, feature uh, from Rose Glass, the director, um, who uh, Guillermo del Toro, of all people, um, and his kind of you know pick of what's coming out this year, um, referenced Rose Glass and Saint Maud. So, so it comes with it comes with high praise. I I have seen it, um, and it is it is um, a great horror film. But I I think what I'd want to remind people is that it is a debut feature. Um, I think it is, it's 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 fantastic. It's brilliant, but it, I I always get worried when when films are carry such a burden of responsibility. It's been talked about redefining you know the horror genre for Britain and things. Um, it, excellent film, great direction and, and and performance. But just bear that in mind. I think so. I'm I'm, I'm managing expectations. I think. <laughs> I, I'm sure. I'm sure that if the word that is coming out on this film is correct, that um, the expectations will be met. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. So that's something I am really excited for this month. But Mark, what's your highlight, or what are you most looking forward to? A big highlight um, that I'm really looking forward to, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, um, Tara, in more detail, is is the London Film Festival 
on tour. Um, you, you know, everybody's obviously been dealing with the chaos that um, COVID has, has has put upon us, and you know, film festivals have had to respond. Um, a lot of them have gone online um, or, or have cancelled, in fact. But the London Film Festival um, is doing a hybrid model uh, in London, but but also um, making available. Um, because cinemas have reopened, making available large parts of the programme um, for for cinemas like Watershed that are open. So that that programme is a fantastic lineup of we've got uh, eleven films. I mean, it opens with Steve McQueen's new film Mangrove, and it closes with Francis Lee's uh, Ammonite. Um, two fantastic films and bookending what is a a, a really exciting programme of work. Yeah, it's really interesting how the landscape has responded and, and adapted, I think, in, in this time. So like you said, I mean, really from, from sort of March onwards, most of the big festivals and the little festivals have either had to cancel, uh, work out a hybrid model, postpone, you know, change, change basically the way that they engage with audiences and the way that they produce their festivals, many of which were already, you know, in the, the well into their pre-planning and production. So a really huge change of events in terms of how festivals approach getting the films out there. And I think that the, what, what LFF has chosen to do is really fantastic because obviously the there is an element of the positive of a lot of film festivals going online is that it has opened up access to people internationally who often can't attend festivals for geographical reasons um, and other reasons. But then also there is this idea that they still want to um, honour and celebrate the cinema experience. And I think it's really great that there's that this has given the opportunity for the London Film Festival to actually become more of a kind of UK film festival to, to sort of branch out a bit more and to appear in different venues across the, the country because, you know, yes, of course, it's um, it's um London is where the festival is born and where it largely physically takes place, but how wonderful that people in other places such as Bristol and who can come to Watershed, um, some people are will be able now to see those films at the same time as they're premiering, um, you know, it, in London for the UK. So, I mean, I really think actually that we, yes, of course, the, the time is very strange at the moment, but there are there are positives um, to look at and to dwell on as well. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, I think what we're seeing uh, within the, the film community and elsewhere is is how do we get through, how do we get through this together? How do we share um, our, our strengths and resources um, and, and the LFF um, is a great example of that. So, as you say, people in Bristol will be able to share these great previews along with um, when it's running with um, in London. Uh, but I think, you know, we, we are seeing, and I've commented on it before, you know, we are seeing such a, a, a change within the exhibition, the, the film landscape, the film ecology, the, the exhibition side of things um, has really changing by, you know, those, what we saw with Tenet, what we saw with uh, Mulan, um, you know, what we're potentially seeing with um, other Disney films is that, you know, these films are are going more quickly um, to where the audience is potentially, which is is online. Um, But it doesn't mean to say that that, that cinema is, is any less um, and in fact, I think what it does is it, is it makes you rethink what the importance of the cinematic and the cinema experience is. And, you know, certainly um, that has been proven by 
audiences coming back. I mean, we will see a change in, you know, quicker change in the way in which films are consumed. But um, it, it makes you go, right, what is cinema? And what is the cinema experience? And that is uh, as, as important and valuable. And I think people recognise that. But we are certainly seeing quite seismic shifts in the way in which cinema and film is distributed. Mm. Yeah, I think also, I mean, I actually really think it's positive in that I think it offers people um, a, uh, a choice and and sort of acknowledges that there are lots of different ways of watching films. And I think, um, you know, for any film lover and any cinema lover, there will be more than one way in which you see films. I mean, I, I know that the cinema experience is obviously my favorite thing in the world, but I also watch films at home. So I think it's great that we have this opportunity now to sort of say, well, look, um, you know, the industry is changing. Things are going to be done slightly differently. Films will be available um, in a, a kind of with different windows and in a multitude of different platforms. But let's um, be positive about that and say that, yeah, there is something about the cinema experience, but there's also choice so that sometimes, you know, you might choose one and other times you might choose the other. And I think that that's what's really great about festivals kind of adopting these hybrid modes is that they're accepting and understanding that some people will want to see films in slightly different ways. And I think that that really does open the films up to a wider audience, which in turn is beneficial only for the cinema industry because it encourages people to engage with a wider range of films mm -hmm. and a wider range of um, voices and, and types of film content. Mm. Well, on, on those um, voices, um, what, what, one of the things that, you know, I've, um, is important for what we do at Watershed is promoting new voices. And, you know, we've mentioned St Maud, Rose Glass is a first-time director, as I've, as I've said before. Um, and one of the films, the other films coming up in October is um, Rialto, uh, which is by Peter Mackey Burns. Um, and it's it's really interesting that he's... Um, we screened his short film, Milk, um, Encounters Festival a good few years back um, it, it actually won an award at the Berlin Film Festival for um, short short film he then went on to make Daphne which um, we screened at Watershed that was his first feature and again we linked that in with Encounters Festival because sort of tracking a director's career from shorts to features um, and now he's made his second film Rialto um, which is, is set in Dublin and it's just great to see um, a director progress. Um, I think Mackie Burns has got a really interesting visual style, which kind of feels as though it's 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 naturalistic. Um, you, you kind of want to go for um, kind of early Loach, Ken Loach as a comparison, but I think he's doing something um, really quite interesting cinematically as well, uh, in a very low key way, and he he deals with. As as with Daphne, he deal he deals deals with people's interior kind of reframing, or in, in this case, it's a older guy who's happily married. Well, not happily married, but he's married with with two grown up kids, and he's he's um, his his work. You realise is potentially changing because of global expansion of the company, the 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 dock. Um, importing company that he works for uh, and he has a midlife crisis um, and forms a, a relationship with a young uh, male prostitute 
and and you see this um he constructs a very um in quotes very ordinary life you know it's a life that everybody can um in a way relate to in terms of its its ordinariness but yet there's extraordinary things that are going on in a complete um reframing of that appearing sort of happy life um nuclear family life that he's got uh, and i think you know Mackie Burns really captures um those kind of shifts in the interiority uh of the of the characters um very quiet films but it it, it makes you think and it makes you um reflect from that interior position I think a really, really strong filmmaker, but very small, very low key. Um, and of course, I worry with films like that, which happened with 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 Real in September, that they kind of go under the radar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I really want to draw people's attentions to it um, because I think it is really deserving of uh, you, you know cinema attention. Yeah, I completely. I completely relate to that, and that's actually how I feel about um, the film Miss Juneteenth, which also opens in October. Uh, and th- this is really gorgeous film. It's a, um, a impressive debut feature from black female filmmaker Channing Godfrey Peoples, and has a really brilliant cast: Nicole Bahari and newcomer Alexis Chikese, who is really awesome she's like a just a, a young little firecracker on screen and it's this this mother-daughter relationship film um completely focused on the character development of a mother and her daughter uh, it sort of sets up uh, a story arc that is familiar it's familiar territory in that you know this is a single mother working hard trying to make ends meet trying to get a better life for her daughter but it actually resists a lot of the cliches that you would kind of expect of that genre so i think it sets up familiarity um and 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 then kind of takes it to a slightly different place i mean it still has a, a similar overall narrative arc and in some ways i think in that sense it's it can be considered a bit of a mainstream film but what's really wonderful about miss juneteenth is that it actually takes this beautiful personal relationship between a mother and a daughter and it uses it to communicate through their softness their feeling and their empathy um, and their experiences, uh, a wider experience about generational trauma um, and, 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 and the kind of wider issues that face uh, African-American communities in, in the U.S. So the, the idea is that Saturday, June 19th is Juneteenth, for anyone who's not aware, which is um, a reminder of the, the struggles that are facing black women in America Juneteenth celebrates the liberation of people enslaved in the United States, and they have this thing in the film called the Miss Juneteenth pageant. Uh, the lead character, Turquoise, played by Nicole Bahari, won this in her youth, and it represents a, a rare opportunity for young black women as the winner of the Miss Juneteenth pageant goes on to get a full scholarship to college, which, as we know in America, is, you know, <laughs> a lot of money mm-hmm. and, and an opportunity that a lot of people from poorer communities don't have the opportunity to go on and do. So she's working in a bar. She's trying to make ends meet. She wants her daughter to have an opportunity. So she wants her daughter Kai to enter and win the Mint's Juneteenth pageant. And she wants her to basically live out the dream that she almost had herself. So she won the pageant, but she didn't get to go on to kind of, you know, have this amazingly better life um but she wants that for her daughter but her daughter kai doesn't really want to do the pageant she's not interested in it she wants has her sights set on dance instead so there's these these two generations that have um different outlook and i think that there's there's something in the idea of 
generational traumas in what's passed down from one to another through this idea of, um, you know, what it feels like to be emancipated from enslavement when you're still uh, enslaved in a ne- neoliberal way, but also the differences between the generations in terms of um, how hope manifests slightly different from generation to generation or how um, a, a, a younger woman and, you know, might not be completely in step with what her mother had wanted for her due to her own experiences. And it's just a really lovely relationship. It reminded me a lot of films like um, actually a little bit of Lady Bird. I mean, I not was, in the... I was going to say Lady Bird. It sort of came yeah. to mind when you said intergenerational there. Yeah, not in the sense of I think that the relationship is... Um, less volatile in in Miss Juneteenth than it is in Lady Bird I think there's a lot more friction in in the the mother-daughter relationship in Lady Bird but just in the sense of kind of focusing on how that dynamic works um and and I I just have to say that the two two actresses uh Nicole Bahari and Alexis Chikazi are just incredible like they're they're really fantastic actresses and they really bring a lot of warmth and heart to the story uh and again it is you know it's a first feature film so um one that I think people won't be aware of the filmmaker yet but do take a chance on it it's definitely worth a watch yeah um definitely worth supporting um I think again that point about um, supporting new talent and um, new new filmmakers, new voices. Uh, I just think it's 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 really important in a, that environment where cinema can be seen very much in that sort of tentpole blockbuster release. But actually, um, you know, there's a lot more as we know to uh, cinema than than those stories. Just when you talk about acting, there, I, I, I meant to say with Rialto again. What, you know, it's really anchored by two fantastic performances. Um, Tom Von Lawler as as the fifty something uh, married guy, and Tom Glenn Carney who plays the young male prostitute Jane. Two um, really strong uh, acting performances there at the heart of it. I think that actually there's a there's a lot of that in the films coming out this month and I don't know whether I mean there's something nice about returning to cinemas to see stories that are really anchored by strong performances because another one for me is uh, Claire Dunn's performance in herself Mm, yeah um, which is uh, really quite a a film that took the wind out of me, mm. shall we say, just sort of guttural punch in the stomach. I I, 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 I thought that opening. Um, you know, when it sets up, um, you know, she's in a, an abusive relationship. Um, and and the, the opening scenes, um, I, I just found incredible filmmaking, very tense. And as you say, I'm in a real gut punch. Yeah, I think it's quite... Uh, and, uh, like you say, an incredible way to start a film because obviously, you know, we've seen depictions of domestic violence in cinema lots of times before. Um, but I, I think what this film did is it doesn't really focus too much on the physical violence. You only see a little bit at the start and then you don't really see much for the rest of the film. So it's not an incredibly violent film, but it starts with such um, gusto in terms of the pacing and the sound. It, you know, it's also got this uh, Paloma Faith song um you know, sort of screaming out at the start really loud, actually in a joyous way before it's cut off and interrupted. But this loud um, kind of voice from the soundtrack of the film is what starts. So we we really get this very sensory beginning um, and feel enveloped, I think, in her situation, which is why I think it feels physical because we feel like we're 
experiencing uh, the abuse or the trauma that she's going through. And so it's a story of uh, a young woman with two young children. She's in an abusive relationship and she's trying to get out of it. And she, she finds a way to escape her abusive partner. And then she's basically entered into the system, the housing system. Um, this is set an island. She's trying to find a way to get home for her and her children to keep them safe, to keep herself safe. She's working multiple jobs as a cleaner, as a barmaid, you know, she's sort of doing an, an awful lot to try and keep just to keep things over the line. And it, and it really shows two things, this film. One, the damage that the system uh, does to to individuals who already have the odds stacked against them and how it's kind of unfairly set up. But two, and this is the hopeful element, uh, is that the film really focuses on what would happen if as a society we came together to support each other? How could our lives how as a community and as individuals could our lives be better if instead of relying on these systems to kind of treat people like paperwork, if we actually as individuals rallied around each other, kind of physically got involved in helping people in our communities and and not just ignoring their requests for help and help make their lives better. And I think there is something here as well on a metaphorical level, just about what does it mean to see and hear and, and uh, affirm when someone needs help. Um, And I think particularly around issues and the themes of domestic violence that her character is just screaming out, will someone please help me? How, you know, how can I recover from this on, on my own? Why does society expect uh, why does society expect women who've been, you know, victims of, of abuse to to then have to do everything on their own? Why aren't we able to support them? And 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 actually, I mean, I've I found this film both deeply sad and upsetting, mm. but also, um, yeah, just anchored by a, an incredible performance. Well, of course, it's, it's directed by Phila Lloyd, um, who I'm sure people know from Mamma Mia, the films, uh, Mamma Mia. And and I think you know what 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 is interesting about the film is that it does straddle those two worlds of you know I mentioned earlier Ken Loach and the sort of social realism of Ken Loach that's kind of partly in in Rialto and again you're dealing with you know very um, real social subject in this film herself but it 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 kind of harnesses that joyous energy of Mamma Mia as well um I, I mean i did think rather worryingly oh my lord are they going to break into song <laughs> <laughs> at, at, at one point you know i mean it felt as though it was but but i think it is reaching as you say for that sense of community that sense of shared um uh that, that things can be overcome and that there is a kind of um uh, joy as you say but but as i say my 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 tech what the tension that was set up at the beginning that i thought was just tremendous became a tension later on which was as i said you know is are they, are they is, is this going to become a musical but it, but but to fill the lloyd and everybody's credit they pulled back from that um from from that from that urge and and it 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 be, yeah I mean it becomes a a, a really strong um, portrait of that sort of uh, community and the possibilities um, and it, and in fact it's one of the films that we're going to preview um, at the London Film Festival on tour at Watershed and then it opens um, in the cinema quite quickly after that at um, towards the end of October. 
Yeah, so there's um yeah, there's a good couple of opportunities to to see this film either on its premiere or to catch up with it a little bit later. And like you say, um a, a filmmaker that people are familiar with but potentially slightly different territory, not not quite so much breaking into song. <laughs> no, not exactly. Resist, <laughs> resist. Um and, and and talking about London Film Festival then, what 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 else is in the program is exciting you? Well, the other film that um obviously I was looking forward to much earlier on in the year and then sort of got, this is the the funny thing as well as the films that we were looking forward to, I guess, in January, February. And then mm. we've, we've obviously all had to pause and wait for them, but I'm really looking forward to Shirley, which is um, starring Elizabeth Moss and the new film from Josephine Decker. And Josephine Decker has just gone from strength to strength with every film. I mean, I, I remember the first time I encountered her work was actually um, before I started working with at Watershed, but I hosted a Q&A at Watershed as a freelancer um, for, with Josephine Decker for her film Thou Were Smiled and Lovely, which was her second feature after Butter on the Latch. And I, th- I think Thou West Mile and Lovely is one of the best films I've seen in the last 10 years. I really do. I think mm. it's a fantastic film. And then she went on to do Madeline's Madeline, which, I mean, as if I didn't think she was already a fantastic filmmaker, I was like, wow, she just keeps knocking out the park. Mm. Um, and so now she's chosen one of my favourite actresses, Elizabeth Moss, to work with um, in Shirley. And, you know, all of the the tension of that, that writing relationship, and I, I love a film about writers. Writing is a passion of mine as well and a hobby. So uh, a great interest to me is, you know, how is she going to bring this character who came up with the haunting of hill house how is she going to bring that to life and i think josephine decker again speaking about i mean i really think the theme of october is actors that um josephine decker really has a way of working with actors and actresses to get something quite unique out of them i think um i really felt like the performances she got in madeline's madeline and the way that she approached the creative process in that film really spoke to her deep understanding of um creative practice uh, as both in a kind of interior, uh, uh, an interior thing like a living creature, but also as as the way it impacts it upon others. And so, I think her taking on Shirley is going to be a. I anticipate it being a highlight of twenty twenty for me. Well, I can say because um, I, I I saw Shirley um, I think at the Berlin Film Festival uh, earlier this year, and um, I don't think it will disappoint Tara. I, I, Elizabeth Moss, I thought was was fantastic in it. She, she, you know, for somebody who's a horror writer to create those stories, um, needs to needs to embody some of that horror. Um, and Elizabeth Elizabeth Moss does an absolutely brilliant um, brilliant job as this quite vulnerable but quite terrorising um, author. I'm dead excited to see that. Um, also, uh, looking forward to the opening and closing films, obviously, Steve McQueen's Mangrove and Francis Lee's Ammonite. Looking forward to both of those. Mm. For, for me, um, a, a, another round, Thomas Vinterberg, um, you, you know, a description which has a darkly humorous, unique look at the vulnerabilities of ageing and masculinity, where a group of four weary middle-aged high school teachers embark on an experiment to enhance their revive their flagging confidence in careers, they stay just a little bit intoxicated by alcohol all through the, the work, working day. The, this is something that has occurred to me from time to time in the past, <laughs> that, that, getting through, that getting through a day with, with just the right amount of alcohol <laughs> uh, is, and it's, it's Thomas um, Vinterberg, of course, who did Festin, 
Um, so I'm sure there'll be I'm sure there'll be the emphasis as much on the dark plays on the humorous. But um, this is Mads Mickelson is one of the one of the four. So I think we're in for um, a bit of fun there, um, and certainly seeing vulnerable aging masculinity on screen. I mean, I look forward to anything that features Mads Mickelson. I'll be honest, I have quite uh, admiration <laughs> for him and and his face. I think he's got a really incredible and unique face yeah. and quite an ability to portray a range of emotions with very little facial movement um which which sounds like a strange comment to make but is a real skill that i don't think a lot i think he has a lot of depth um in in very minimal mm. movement on his face so i i love a bit of mads mickelson well, fun, fun, funnily enough i just i just re um re-watched casablanca and it you know, the, watching Bogart's performance and that, where he, you know, he he knows how to um, do the minimal amount in front of that camera, but give the maximum amount that for you as the audience. That what you're doing is you're inhabiting their brain, the character's brain, and I think Mads Mikkelsen's absolutely in that same space, whereby it's it's it, it, he's he's got such a um, characterful face. And does the minimal amount that you you as the the, the viewer are, are going into that brain, as it were? <laughs> a darkly humorous one. I, I massively look forward yeah. to that. Um, but you've also seen uh, Mogul Mowgli, which is uh, playing as part of LFF, haven't you, Mark? Yes, and um, it, it, Riz Ahmed again is one of these um, actors um, who, who's really uh, evolved um, over the past couple of years into a major filmmaking force in, in, in the UK and beyond. Um, and what's great is that he, he he lends his talents and his profile to, um, you know, smaller projects as well as the sort of, you know, being in Star Wars, etc. And in this one, he's a, he's a rapper uh, in the UK. He's on, on um, the cusp of success and fame. Um, and he's struck down by a debilitating illness, um, which which takes him back to his family, and he begins to struggle with, you know, the the his, his kind of um, family, his creative ambition, um, and also um, the sort of undercurrents of racism. Um, but he's he's again one of those actors whose um, energy on screen is just um, fantastic. Um, and I think it's a really timely film um, as well. And that actually gets a release quite quickly after we preview it at the festival. So I think it opens towards the end of October, uh, beginning of November. So we've had quite a theme, actually, about fantastic acting in films this month. Yeah. But there's one film where it's not acting, where it's just actually the person um, and that's documentary that's opening in October called I Am Greta all about Greta Thunberg um, and this is I think a film that a lot of people are going to be very very keen to see um, obviously she is well known for her work on climate crisis but this is also a look at not just the work she does but her as a person um, uh, I, I think you said you watched this with your daughters, Mark. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, she's she's obviously been a, an important phenomenon, Greta Thunberg, um, and ha, has really focused on that uh, urgent issue of climate change. And um, my daughters, before the documentary, um, took you know inspiration, but also activism from Greta Thunberg, 
and you know, say she's raised those um, important issues. And yeah, we sat down and watched the documentary, and it, it's interesting seeing the criticism of the film that's kind of come out. You know, film critics rather um, writing about the film, saying, "Oh, it doesn't do this, it doesn't do that. It, it's not as insightful as as um, uh, inconvenient truth, and you know those kind of films." But but you know, it spoke directly to nineteen-year-old, twenty-one-year-old daughters um, who can identify completely with both the issues that Greta Thunberg has has galvanised us around, but also as a young person in a world that is just not listening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I found this, I I think it's really, it will be fascinating to see how this film is received differently across different generations, actually. Mm. And that's why I asked about your your daughters watching it with you, because um, I do think that, there is a hopefulness in the younger generation um, and and what they why they've seen and been activated or inspired by by Greta's work is because of that hopefulness and that fury um, at at the inactivity of older generations and that fire and impetus in their bellies to mm. change the world to make it better um, and I think watching it as someone older and having honestly. I think disappointingly probably a bit too much apathy and cynicism um, is that you, you have this, there are different relationships you can have with the film. And so I think it's interesting talking about the fact that a lot of critics have said, Oh, the film does or doesn't do this, because I think there is a frustration that maybe the film doesn't kind of, um, uh, focus enough on some of the complexities of of how she sort of manages to get by but I think that's because it's focusing quite a lot on the personal and it's a Swedish filmmaker that um, Nathan Grossman who has followed her from Stockholm all the way to New York City um, and to various places in between including Poland and Belgium and France uh, we see her with public figures like Emmanuel Macron we hear sound bites of people like Trump and Scott Morrison uh, you know world leaders saying terrible things about her but what really struck me about the film actually and and I felt a deep sense of sadness and melancholy for was this notion of how she and her parents her and her family have tried to navigate um both her strength and resilience but also her her personal suffering um you know this is a a young girl who has had an incredibly difficult time and relationship with food in Mm, her past mm. um has had a difficult time kind of socially and has has really decided that she's put herself out there for a cause that is far bigger and more important than herself but has been amplified in the process and when we think about fame, we often think about fame and, and young people as to do with things like them being famous singers or actors or, you know, their, for their talent. But she's kind of been spun into the paparazzi in the world of, of, of fame uh, due to a po- political <laughs> belief and a, a sort of a push forward for support for science, which is quite unusual. And so I think, therefore, the, the, the focus on or the impact on her and her family is quite different. Mm. Um, because it's not it's not as though she was seeking out fame that she didn't want to be a famous singer or you know like yeah. a lot of a lot of youngsters who become famous they actually at least have a desire for that she she has no desire to be popular she even talks about you know not being interested in any of those things she would prefer she says in the film and I think it's heartbreaking she would prefer to be an ordinary girl an ordinary school mm. girl she just wants to go back to school and carry on because she just doesn't want adults to ignore this problem anymore and so I think as an older generation I also felt uh, heartbroken because I felt the response, weight and responsibility of my generation not doing enough. Well, I, but I think that's exactly what she embodies. Um, you know, if you take if you take away that personal 
and and of course, you know, you know, is um, a real insight into her and her, her family's, you know, relationships and life. But but she does embody the way in which she looks. Is she's looking at at, at those politicians, the United Nations, and she's calling them out for what the, the complete lack of failure. Um, and it's an extraordinary thing. Um, um, in Bristol, people will know that, you know, there's a, a huge graffiti image over at the side of the tobacco factory. Mm. And, and it is simply her looking out and, and saying, what have you done? You know, and I think she, there is, the, the, it, it is that call to calling people out. Truth, I mean, truth to power. Um, but as you say, she doesn't want to, but, but uh, or, you know, she's, she's kind of, forced as it were into that position but and it may well be to do with you know her Asperger's and and you know that that situation that that she's got but she directly addresses the failure of the system to to address that and that is actually I think what is what is inspiring but as you say the the documentary does around the edges um reveal um the personal toll that the that that um, has has taken. I think it's extraordinary as well when you you think the director kind of stumbled upon this subject um, and stumbled upon Greta. He apparently was making film. He's an he's a activist himself, an eco activist, and he was making documentary about how young people respond uh, are responding to the challenges of climate change. And he heard through a friend about this young girl who was doing this individual protest outside um, the Swedish parliament. So he went along. And, of course, he then got swept up. And he didn't think this was going to... It was just going to be a portrait of a few young people and it would be a small documentary. But, of course, then gets swept up as well um, in, you know, what happened. And I think it is a, a, an urgent film. The film follows her when she did the crossing to from Europe to uh, New York uh, for the conference over there, and I think in that in those scenes when she's on that boat going through the stormy waters is both a metaphor, but also you do, as you mentioned, you do see the vulnerability, and and it's difficult. You have to remind yourself that she's fifteen, um, sixteen, and she she is a young person. But those scenes in the boat, I thought, um, I, I, was when I started getting emotional because of both, you know, that individual journey, but also the wider metaphor that the film lends itself to. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, a very, um, it's an, an emotional issue and it's an emotional story told from, you know, the perspective of a, a really brave, fearless and also very vulnerable mm. young woman. So I Am Greta opens um, at Watershed this month, um, along with the rest of the films that we've been talking about and more. And if you want to find out more about those films, then go to watershed.co.uk. And that is all for this month. Thank you very much, Tara. Thanks, Mark. Look forward to chatting to you again soon to see what's coming up in November.